you turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We've been working our way through the 12th chapter of Matthew. And uh, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we look at his word this morning, and uh, depending on the time at the end of the service for our communion time, we just want to have a little time of uh, uh, just prayerfully thanking God. And um, we'll give you that opportunity, and we like to do that in short uh, little bursts of thanksgiving to, the God, to, to our, our Heavenly Father. And so you'd be thinking about uh, what you're thankful for. And when the opportunity comes, don't be shy. You can just uh, uh, pray that out uh, at that part of the service. But as we uh, come to this subject of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, we've, last week we looked at how he encountered legalism dealing with this. And um, we looked at the background of the Sabbath pretty much in detail last week. And we learned that God established the Sabbath as a pattern uh, originally in Genesis uh, chapter 2 as a, as a pattern of rest, a day of rest. Uh, he didn't command, however, any t- anybody at that time to obey the Sabbath, uh, to observe the Sabbath. He just laid it out there as an example. He worked six days in creation, and he rested on the seventh, the Bible says. Um, he, but he didn't command Israel to keep the Sabbath at that time. He issued the commandment of the Sabbath later when he issued the law to Moses in uh, the book of Exodus. And uh, it was one of the Ten Commandments, we know. But, and we looked at that in detail, so if you're interested in what we said, you can get the, the tape from last week. But remember, out of the Ten Commandments given... Um, Nine of them were moral commandments. One of them was a ceremonial commandment, dealing with Sabbath law, dealing with resting on the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath. And so he issued the command of the Sabbath along with the other ten uh, through Moses. And it was at that time they were commanded to keep the Sabbath day. Now, what day is the Sabbath? Saturday. It's not Sunday. Christians don't make the Sabbath into Sunday. That's incorrect teaching. All right. The Sabbath is and always will be on Saturday. And so we looked at that extensively last week as well. But it's interesting when you look at the Ten Commandments and you think, well, why is it wrong then to work on the Sabbath? You know, in Judaism, why is it wrong? It's wrong because God said it was wrong. <laughs> that's, that's why. The other commandments, when you stop and think about it, had to do with something morally wrong. It's, it's not right to take your neighbor's wife or to steal or to lie or to use God's name in vain. Those are moral issues. But whether or not you honor the Sabbath or not, it's simply wrong to do it for the nation of Israel because God commanded them to keep the Sabbath as a, as a day that's set apart, a day of rest. Uh, nine of the, the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And the one that's not repeated is the one dealing with the Sabbath. Nowhere in the New Testament as believers are we kept, are we told to keep the Sabbath. You won't find that. And uh, as a matter of fact, you find something really uh, to the contrary. But Last week, we looked also at the, that word Sabbath, what that means. The, the English word Sabbath, the Greek word Sabbaton, the Hebrew word Shabbat. It all means ceasing from doing anything, resting, 
uh, inactivity. That's what that word concludes. And unfortunately, the religious leaders of Jesus' day turned the Sabbath into anything but rest. It was very frustrating for the folks in Jesus' day when the Sabbath came because they had, were burdened down with so many rules, so many regulations. It was hard for them to even conceive of resting on the Sabbath because they were worried about every little thing that they would do, that it would break Sabbath law. Not God's Sabbath law, but the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day came up with all these extra oral written laws. And they were sick to death of all the stuff that was burdened upon them. And that's why it's so interesting right here in Matthew chapter 12, right after Jesus says, all of you who are weary, all of you who are heavy laden, come unto me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now you kind of understand what he's talking about. Because they were burdened down with just a horrific amount of do's and don'ts and all this religious mumbo-jumbo. So they could do anything but rest on the Sabbath day. And so that's why Matthew, through the Spirit of God, introduces this at this segment in his gospel. Now, we looked at the purpose of the Sabbath last week, and it involved basically three, three principles, physical refreshment, national remembrance, and spiritual redemption. And we looked at the difference between the Sabbath day and the Lord's day. Okay, And we saw that the Sabbath day is on Saturday, the Lord's day is on Sunday. The Sabbath day came at the end of a week of toil. God created, and then he rested. Well, the Lord's day, Sunday, is a day that begins the week. Hopefully with the restful knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has given his life for yours and paid your debt on Calvary, and you rest in the assurance that you are saved through his work, through his grace. The Sabbath day commemorated the first creation. God created, and then he created a Sabbath day. He said, rest on the, on the Sabbath day. But the Lord's day is really linked to a new creation in the heart of someone, a transforming power that comes into somebody's life through Jesus Christ and transforms them, makes them into a new person when they come to Christ, repenting of their sin. The Sabbath day was a day of responsibility. Like I said, they had all these rules and regulations. The Lord's day is a day of privilege. We should count it a privilege that we can come to this place and worship the Lord God, our creator. I mean, it shouldn't be a humdrum thing. It should be something that we're excited to do on the first day of the week. And it doesn't matter if we meet here in this building or we met in the middle of a cow pasture. It doesn't matter. That shouldn't matter. What should matter is what's our focus? Our focus should be on worshiping and praising our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's a day of privilege. And also the Sabbath day was a, a shadow of things to come, whereas the Lord's day was really the substance of everything that we know in Christ. And we began to look at our text, and we saw through our text, we saw a couple things. We saw the actions of the disciples. It says there in verse 1, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And the Pharisees saw that, and they were just troubled by that. And so they basically asked the question of, of Jesus. And they saw it and they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, not lawful to do according to who? 
Not according to God, because in Deuteronomy, God allowed for just this such a thing. Somebody traveling through the countryside, they didn't have in and outs back then. You know, if you got hungry, you couldn't just pull your car over, your carriage or whatever it was, and, and run in and grab something. Okay, you couldn't do that. So God allowed for travelers in those days to be able to go into somebody's field and not cut everything down, but to go ahead and take a head of grain and, and eat what they could. They were allowed to do that under God's law. God made a provision for them. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day came along and said, oh, no, no, that's work. That's considered, you know, harvesting and reaping and everything. That's, and they, they got down to all the minutiae that we talked about last week. And so the actions of the disciples on the Sabbath day really troubled the religious leaders because they were looking at the Sabbath day with such a legalistic mindset. They couldn't see anything else. They couldn't see that these poor people here in, in, in Matthew 12 were hungry. They've been serving the Lord. They're out walking distances, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, they get hungry, so they pluck, pluck some grain, and they eat. They didn't see that. They didn't see that it was meeting somebody's need. They just said, oh, nope, they're plucking grain. That's considered harvesting, reaping. We got them. And that was their attitude. And that was the accusation of the Pharisees that they broke the Sabbath, that they did something that wasn't lawful to do on the Sabbath day. And you hear that even today among Christians. Some people say, oh, I can't believe that person's doing, you know, look at what they're doing. They're cutting their grass. They went home from church and they're cutting their grass. Oh, God forbid. This isn't what we're talking about. Should we have a day of rest? Yes. But you know what? Your day of rest may be different than mine. And so we saw the accusation of the Pharisees. And then we came to the very interesting answer which Jesus gave them uh, in, in verse uh, uh, 3 there. He begins and he says, But he said to them, Have you not read? And that was almost kind of an insult. I mean, these are people who are keepers of the law. And, you know, it'd be, going, it'd, be, it'd be similar to go to a, you know, something like the, 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 maybe a, a Catholic priest or, or maybe a Buddhist monk or somebody like that that, you know, is very ingrained in what they know about the religion. And you say, well, don't you know you guys believe this? I mean, that was almost be an insult to them. Of course they knew that. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and he that were with them? How he entered the house of God and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? And what he's saying to them is saying, hey, wait a minute. You got your priorities all mixed up here. And they did, clearly. They had a big misunderstanding about what was meant by keeping the Sabbath. And he gives them basically an illustration here. He appeals to a king, David. He appeals to the priests who were in the uh, temple on the Sabbath. And when they were in the temple on the Sabbath, they were doing all sorts of sacrifices and stuff. So they were working hard, picking up animals and slaughtering them, all sorts of things going on. And all their little rules about how much you could carry and all the load and everything just kind of went out the window. And also he appealed to a prophet in verse 7 when he talks of, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So it's interesting that Jesus Christ, the king, the priest, and the prophet himself appealed to those arguments to the Pharisees. 
And it's interesting what he says in verse 6. He says, yet I say to you, and this is kind of a continuation from his answer from last week that we looked at. I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. At that point, these people probably just stepped back from him and they were shocked that he would say such a thing. Greater than the temple? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, in their mind, there was nothing greater than the temple. There was nothing that could rise above the idea of the temple itself. Now, you've got to remember, originally they had what they called the tabernacle, remember? And as they traveled throughout in, the, in their exile and whatnot, they'd take this tent and they'd put it up and they would bring the ark in and that would be where the presence of God dwelt. It was a kind of a temporary structure for the presence of God in their midst. And as they'd travel around, they'd carry this tabernacle with them. Well, once they established themselves in Jerusalem and whatnot, they actually built a temple. And that's where the priest would be. And so it wasn't any longer a temporary structure. It was now a permanent structure. And so they built this temple, and they would have sacrifices going on there, and that housed the Holy of Holies. And, and uh, what he's saying here, and if you know anything about Judaism, everything revolves around this. Their whole belief system revolves around sacrifice and the temple and the priest and the Sabbath day. And, and he's hitting them right where it counts. The temple was where God dwelt in their midst. And so when he said there, there's someone greater, not something, but someone greater than the temple. And guess who it is? It's me. That's what he said. I'm greater than this temple. And so he says if, if in the tabernacle, in the temporary thing, David could eat the showbread because the, the priest's allowed him to do that. It doesn't overrule meeting people's needs. The Sabbath day was a day where you should meet people's needs. And what he's pointing out is, hey, my disciples are hungry. We've been traveling. There's nothing wrong with them, according to God's word, them going out and plucking some grain and eating it. Now, you came up with all this minutia, and that's what he's trying to point out to them. He's trying to steer them back on the right path concerning the Sabbath day. And then he brings up the idea that the priests can violate and profane the Sabbath. They do service for God. So it's not only the idea that you're meeting people's needs, but also within the service of God. You're, you're allowed to do things on the Sabbath that would be serving God. He's pointing that out to them. And if the priests can violate that, well, he comes along and he says, you know what? Are you telling me that I'm not allowed to do this? Because I'm greater than both of those things. That's what he's basically telling them. They understood that the tabernacle or the temple was greater than the tabernacle. But when Jesus said that he's greater than the temple, it just blew their minds. It was absolutely shocking to them. And what he was doing is he was, he was creating here a claim of deity. He's telling them in so many words, hey, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. That's why in John 1.14 it says that we beheld his glory. That he came down. He dwelt among us. He put on the flesh of a man. He is the temple of God. God dwelt in a tabernacle. Then he dwelt in the temple. But now 
greater than a tabernacle or a temple, Jesus Christ came to earth and God dwelt in human form among his own creation. And he's pointing that out to them. It's a claim of his deity, that he is, in fact, God. And so he's saying if there's exceptions for the tabernacle and if there's exceptions for the the temple dealing with this Sabbath minutia that you've created, there better be some exceptions for the true incarnate God, which I am. He's more sacred than any house that anybody ever built for God. So he made that threefold appeal to them based on necessity, service, and mercy, based on the example of a king, the priest, and then a prophet. And it's interesting that the Sabbath day never really was meant to overrule those things. If you had a need on the Sabbath day, you were able within the written word of God to meet that need. You were allowed to serve God on that day. You were allowed to do deeds of mercy on that day. And so in verse 7, when he points out to them, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's an important point that he's making here. You would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, if you wouldn't have missed the whole point here, folks, that's what he's telling them. You would understand what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, sometimes we get those things mixed up. That word sacrifice really embodies the whole ceremonial system. The whole ceremonial system around the Sabbath is what he's talking about. And it's important to understand that that was only a shadow. That was only a a shell, an example of something to come. What God really wants is he wants a merciful heart. God is merciful. God is loving. He wants his people to be that way. If people hunger... You know what? He wants them to be fed. doesn't matter what day of the week it is. And so it's a beautiful lesson that the Lord gives us here. That he always desires kindness. He always desires self-sacrifice. He always desires mercy. Those are the things that our God wants from us. And sometimes we get so caught up, even in our own Christian walk, and during the Christian disciplines, we get so legalistic in our thinking, we throw all mercy uh, all kindness, all self-sacrifice out the window. And, you know, I'm keeping this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this for the Lord. And we make this big list of things that we think that, you know, heaven would fall from the sky if it wasn't done, and it's done by me. <laughs> and God says, wait a minute, your priorities are all wrong. I mean, it's great that you sacrifice. God demands that. But it's also important that we mix mercy and kindness and self-sacrifice in with that. I mean, sometimes God, in his word, he sets aside his own laws for the sake of mercy. God sets aside his own written law for the sake of mercy. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I'm still here and you're still here. (laughs) If it wasn't for God's mercy, we wouldn't be here. Because we all sin probably a myriad of ways every day. And it's only by the grace and mercy of God that we are allowed to keep breathing. God has overruled his judgment of his written law because of his mercy, because of his grace. I mean, think of the issue of divorce. 
God doesn't like divorce. The Bible says that God hates divorce. But you know what? He does allow, it says when an unbeliever wants to leave, let him leave. Doesn't please God, but he's saying, hey, if that's the circumstances, I'm going to apply my mercy to that circumstance. He wants to meet that need in your life for his mercy. And in the case of ceremonial law concerning the Sabbath, God would set aside the entire rules and regulations, everything, to show somebody mercy. Because that's the kind of God we have. Ceremonial law is just a shadow of things to come. When it comes to God's moral law, that's different. That's different. But even then, throughout the Word of God, sometimes He set aside that to show people mercy, to show people grace. And I just want to let you know that it's only God who has the prerogative to do that because he is God and we're not. We can't call that, those shots. Only God can. God ultimately wants our hearts. He wants an obedient heart. And the Pharisees were just on the other side of the, the, the field. They, they weren't anywhere near being obedient to God. He wanted mercy. They had, they had no idea what mercy was. To them, it was all legalistic mumbo-jumbo. Especially on the Sabbath, what Jesus is pointing out to them, especially on that day, you think that you would be merciful to people above everything else, but they weren't willing to do that. They were only willing to kind of give out their law and their requirements of their written law, their, their oral law. I mean, wouldn't you think that the Sabbath of all days would be a day that you'd want to serve the Lord? And here they were walking along the serving Lord who was preaching the kingdom, reaching people, and they had to get something to eat along the way. And, and these Pharisees are back in the, the wheat field. They're, oh, look at them now. They're eating. Oh, let's go get them. That's our chance. That's our opportunity. They weren't concerned about being merciful. They were looking for a point of contention. And so they, we see here that they basically indicted him. And so when he was done with his little instruction here on this, at the end, verse 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mean, it can't get any worse than this. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just beyond themselves at this point. Really, what he's doing is he's taking this and he's turning the tables on him. He's saying, hey, you think my disciples violate the Sabbath. You're the ones that are violating the Sabbath. You're the ones that are not willing to, to show any mercy, to serve, to do anything on the Sabbath. You're the ones that are just so stuck on your laws and regulations. You're the ones that are violating the Sabbath. And he totally pushes them over the edge with madness. And when he says that final verse there in verse 8... Basically, what he's saying to them is, you know what? Listen, pals, I established the Sabbath, and I'll interpret what can be done and what can't be done on the Sabbath. Thank you very much. So you just take your little fancy robes, and you go back to your little temple. I mean, do you know why we don't keep the Sabbath anymore? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. This ties in well with our communion time this morning. Hebrews chapter 4.
What does the word rest mean in Scripture when it speaks of rest? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It speaks of salvation, right? Remember, we, we, we mentioned this. Well, in Hebrews chapter 4, the reason we don't keep the Sabbath is because Jesus fulfilled it. It says in Hebrews 4 that because of Christ, we've entered into the rest. Look at what it says. Therefore, in verse 1, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, speaking of salvation, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter, who, Israel, basically, it was preached to them first, because of their disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What he's saying is there's still an opportunity here for you to enter this rest. There's still an opportunity for you to enter salvation. For if Joshua, verse 8, had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. See, they were big on, you know, naming names. Oh, we're, we're of the Abraham's, our father, you know, and Joshua, and they name all these names. And he's saying basically... They couldn't do anything for you. <laughs> Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. See, the Sabbath day was given as an example <clears throat> of us entering salvation. Just like God created for six days and then he rested on the seventh, he's saying, you know what? The Sabbath day is given as an example. When you come to Christ, what do you do? In order to come to Christ, do we tell people, well, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to work harder. You've got to do more stuff. Is that how you become a Christian? You know, you've got to give more to the church. You've got to read your Bible more. You've got to pray more. You've got to, you know, witness more. You've got to sacrifice more. You got to go help people, the homeless, and you do all those things. And if you do enough of that stuff, eventually, maybe God will enter you into the rest, into salvation. Beloved, that's not what the Bible teaches. But see, that's what the Pharisees thought. They thought as long as they kept all their ducks in order and they did everything that was needed according to their oral law, that they were declaring themselves righteous. And what he's pointing out here is that, you know what? To come to Christ, you actually have to stop working for yourself. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to come to a point in time in your own life where you realize that the only way that you can be saved is by God's grace and God's grace alone. It's not because, you know, of your gifts or your talents or your personality or your heritage or your family background or because mom and pop were a Christian or had nothing to do with it. Everybody comes to Christ 
one by one by one. And he's pointing this out. Verse 11 in Hebrews 4, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Remember when we talked earlier in Matthew about broad is the way to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life. See, some people believe that, oh, it's just easy to get saved. It's so easy. Just get happy in Jesus and, you know, pray this little prayer and, you know, hey, boy, everything will work out fine. Welcome to the family. Then you have poor people walking around the churches today that think they're part of the family of God. They're not because they've never been transformed by the Spirit of God or His Word or the Gospel. And they're trying to do what they see other Christians doing. And what happens? They get frustrated. And it almost becomes a similar thing to the day in which Jesus is dealing with the Sabbath day. His people were just burdened down with all these rules and regulations. See, if you look at your Christian life as a bunch of rules and regulations, I don't know what Christ you're serving, but you're not serving the Christ that I serve. Because the Word of God says that there's freedom in Christ. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. It doesn't mean we go off and do whatever we please, because we're called to die to ourselves daily, to take up our cross and follow Him on a daily basis. But he says, you know what? Don't harden your hearts to that truth. Because you're hearing his voice even as we're speaking about his word today. You've got to be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, he says, there is living, is powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. See, sometimes we think that we're off in our own little corner and nobody knows anything about us. God knows everything about you. He sees the dark recesses of your heart. He sees those questions that you have. He sees those doubts that you have. And it says here, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, one day we're all going to stand before the Lord. One day we're all going to give an account. He says in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Good, good point for an amen right there. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is this high priest? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold forth our confession. See, we're not putting our faith, our trust in some human being. We're not putting our faith and trust in some church or some priest or some pastor or somebody that could ultimately just fail miserably. That's not what our faith is in. The object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary. That's the only way we can be saved. We can't look at ourselves and put faith in ourselves. How many times have you let yourselves down? Boy, I mean, we could talk about that for days probably. Make some big commitment, come around the first of the year, and oh, yeah, I want to do all this stuff, New Year's resolution, you know. By the end of February, it's all out, you know, forget it. I'll wait till next year. We let ourselves down all the time with these commitments and things. 
Jesus Christ is a God who will never, ever, ever let you down. That's why we hold fast our confession of who he is. Verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. See, he understands who we are. You say, well, how? He's God. Because he came down and he was God in a bod for 33 years. And he understands all the pressures and the burdens and the intricacies of this life here on this earth that we call home. He understands that because he walked here amongst us, the Bible says. So he can sympathize with our weakness. And it says there, and was in all points tempted as we are. Now we can talk about that theologically for days and still not understand the full grasp of what, that, what those words mean. But you know what? The idea that Jesus was tempted even as we are. He faced temptation just like we face it each and every day. And yet, the end of that verse says that he was without sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He committed no sin whatsoever. And because of that, when we put our faith, our confession in him, not in ourselves, not in a church, not in a religion, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 16 says, when our faith is in him, in the Son of God, who died to take away the sins of the world, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Sabbath spoke of. In him we find the rest that Jesus said, hey, you know what? God said I'm going to put this day aside and you know, rest on this day, and I'm laying down this example. I'm going to do it myself. I created six days, rested on the seventh. Now, you know, eventually I'm going to command you to do this. And then, you know, the religious people came up with all these rules and regulations. God said, well, you can't travel on the Sabbath. They couldn't figure out what that meant. So then they said, well, if you travel more than, you know, a thousand yards, that's considered traveling. I was just crazy. And that's not what God intended. They looked at the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. They were unwilling to look at the spirit of the law. And so you, you see here that we don't celebrate the Sabbath anymore because Christ is the fulfillment of all that. God, through the Sabbath, was saying, you know what, people, there's going to come a day of rest. And you need to look forward to that. I mean, how many times do you find yourself in the middle of the week looking forward to the weekend? I guess it may depend on how long your honeydew list is or whatever, but, you know, sometimes you may just have a free weekend and you're looking forward to just kind of relaxing, watching a ball game, just kind of doing nothing, maybe just doing what you enjoy doing. You know, that's, that's kind of what God is saying here. He's saying there's going to come a day, folks, when you're going to be able to rest ultimately from this body of sin that holds us captive now. One day we're going to shed this body of sin and we're going to be glorified even as the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. We're not going to have to deal with sin anymore. We're not going to have to deal with doubt anymore. I mean, what a glorious day that will be. That day is coming. And through the, through the Sabbath, 
example here. He was giving them kind of a, a picture of that rest that's just around the corner. But the Pharisees ruined that. <laughs> they took that illustration that God gave them and they just ruined it. Because they turned it into a day of duty. They turned it into a bunch of laws and regulations that offered no rest to anybody. And if God's kingdom is like their Sabbath day, who would want it? It's like some religions. You know, you talk to people in some religions and they, they have all these things that they can do, they can't do, they do. Oh, we can't do this, we can't do that. I remember even growing up in the Catholic Church, you know, Fridays you couldn't eat, couldn't eat meat, you got to have fish. Why? Well, it's just, you know, Peter and all this stuff, you know, who knows, you know, just, just don't eat meat. Or as a kid, I used, used to just, I didn't like it. The idea that as Roman Catholic, we, we practiced Lent. And what Lent was, was a time where you would, before Easter, it always fell before Easter. And not being a Christian, Easter had nothing to do with the resurrection of Christ. All it had to do with getting a big box of candy. That's all it had to do with in our house. I mean, we went to Mass and everything, but I mean, as kids, we didn't, you know, Easter bunny and candy. That's all I remember thinking. And I remember, I forget how many weeks it is before Easter, but you have this thing called Lent, and you've got to give up something for Lent. You know, you go Ash Wednesday, and they do a little deal on their head, and then you start this commitment of giving. And inevitably, every year, I was asked, what are you going to give up? And, you know, I was always talked into giving up candy. <laughs> and if you know me, I mean, i got a little sweet tooth going on. So, I mean, I just remember, even as a kid, I used to just hate it. I remember even sometimes I'd, you know, sneak some candy, and I'm thinking, oh, man, what's going to happen to me? And it wasn't even a time of refreshment that even the, the original intenders of that belief system meant it to be. It became this burden. And then I remember Easter morning, hooray, man, you can eat all the candy you want, just brush, shoving it down your throat, getting sick. Going, oh, man, what did I do that for? But... There's a rest that's coming, and it has, it's, it's so much better. So much better than anything that we can come up with. And these folks have destroyed it. And that's why Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? Come over here. My burden's light. My yoke is easy. You guys got it hard under these religious people. Come over here. You'll find rest. And I guarantee you, even this morning, as you come to Christ, you're not going to find judgment. You're not going to find unforgiveness. You're going to find love. You're going to find mercy. You're going to find someone who meets your needs through Christ. Because that's the God that we serve. Jesus came to fulfill the Sabbath day. That's why there's no more need for a shadow. There's no more need for this illustration because we've entered the reality. When you come to Christ and you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're as saved as you're ever going to be. There's no more salvation available to you. You can't like look around and go, well, okay, I know Jesus saved me, but who else, anybody else, anybody else got any takers out there that want to save me too just to make sure? No, you're complete in Christ, the Bible says. See, that's why the New Testament says nothing about keeping the Sabbath because Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Sabbath. Turn over to Romans chapter 14 because it does mention some things about the Sabbath, but it definitely doesn't talk about keeping the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, it says just the opposite. 
It talks about the law of liberty. Look at verse 5, Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another day. wonder what day he's talking about. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He, verse 6, who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. It's talking about the Sabbath day here. Some people, some Jews came to Christ and they still observe the Sabbath day. And he's saying, you know what? That's okay. If they do it as unto the Lord, that's okay. Just don't try to put your beliefs on my beliefs. Because if I want to get together on the first day of the week and rest on that day or whatever, what Paul is saying here, it makes no difference what day it is. The principle is, for our own well-being, when God established the Sabbath day rule, he established it as an example of our salvation, but he also established it for our own well-being, even for the well-being of animals, that they couldn't be worked seven days a week, that you wouldn't work seven days a week. God never intended you to work seven days a week. He intended you to work six and then rest. So we got a better deal going on even in our society today. Most people work five days and then they rest two. And so in the book of Romans, some people were getting on their high horse and say, oh, well, Saturday's my day, all oh, Sunday. And, and, and Paul's saying, hey, it doesn't matter. Just do what is on to the Lord. Over in Galatians chapter 4, he mentions it. In, in Colossians chapter 2, he says, Don't let anyone impose upon you days or Sabbaths. In other words, don't let anybody come along like the Seventh-day Adventists and say, Oh, Saturday is the only day that we can worship God. Because that's wrong. That's not what Scripture says. See, we have a reality here. The shadow is gone. You know, when you see somebody's shadow, usually... You know, around the corner or something, you're, you're not seeing the individual. But all of a sudden, when that comes, that individual comes in to being and, and they're before you, you don't sit there and talk to them and look at their shadow. You look at the real deal. And that's what the Bible is telling us. That's why Christ rose on the first day of the week. That's why the disciples met together on the first day of the week. That's why they broke bread on the first day of the week. That's why they gathered up the tithes and offerings for the storehouse of the Lord on the first day of the week. Why did they do that? Because that was the day commemorated and celebrated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, it's a new covenant. We don't meet on Saturday. We don't worship the Lord on Saturday as as a corporate gathering because that's not the day that Christ rose from the dead. He rose on the first day of the week. And so we see how this kind of plays out. Well, Jesus isn't done here. He goes on and he gives them kind of an application of his authority over the Sabbath. And he's almost saying, you know what, unless you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to tell you this again. So look at what he says in verse 9. Back in Matthew 12, right after he declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He, saw, he says, now when he had departed from there, look at where he goes. <laughs> he doesn't sound retreat. Okay, these guys are upset. All right, they're, they're, he sees it. He doesn't retreat from the battle. He doesn't retaliate. 
<clears throat> but he doesn't retreat. It says that he went into their synagogue. <clears throat> he went right into their place of worship. And verse 10 says, And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, asked him, Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Shows me a couple things. First of all, they believed that he could heal. Why would they say that if they didn't believe that he had the power to heal? Their only problem was, and we're going to find that out later in the coming weeks, they thought that power came not from God, but from Satan himself. So here's this man with a paralyzed hand. And they ask him the question, is it lawful to heal this man? I mean, where do they, where do they think that he got power like that? I mean, they've seen him do it over and over again, and yet they still did not believe in him. And they believed that he was empowered by Beelzebub, by Satan. And you say, well, why did they pick this guy with a paralyzed hand? The reason they did that is because, see, their rules and regulations said on the Sabbath day, you could help somebody if it was a life or death situation. <clears throat> you couldn't get them better. <laughs> In other words, you could give somebody medicine if they were sick, if they were going to die. You could give them medicine, but you couldn't give them enough medicine to get better. You could just give them enough medicine to maintain their life. And then once the Sabbath was over, then you could work on getting it better. I mean, you have no way of even controlling that if you think about it. It's kind of ridiculous. But here, they picked this guy with a withered hand. Why? Specifically because he wasn't a life or death issue. So when Jesus, if he healed this guy, we got him. Because this guy, he could live, you know, for a couple more years with his withered hand. That's not going to kill him. So he's breaking our Sabbath rule. Their laws said that you, you could prevent someone from dying, but you couldn't make them better. Obviously, healing somebody with a withered hand is making his life better. So it says, they asked him the question that they might accuse him. They were trying to trap him. But Jesus knew their hearts. It says in verse 11, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Their answer, they did not answer, but their answer obviously is, well, yeah, we've all done that. They answered by their silence. Now, obviously, it was the basics of economics. A sheep was something that was, you know, economically viable to a family. If, if, if one of the, the sheep fell on a thing and was going to die, well, yeah, you could definitely go get the sheep out. Now, as long as you took enough guys to lift the sheep out of the pit, because if you did it yourself, you'd be lifting more than a dried fig. So you probably had to have 10 guys, so each, every guy didn't lift more than a dried fig. I mean, that's how ridiculous this was. But they've all lifted sheep out of a pit, is the idea. And so he says, well, wait a minute. If you've done that, he asks this question. Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? I mean, that's a good question to ask the pro-death people today in our society, the people that slaughter babies by the thousands, but throw somebody in jail for kicking a dog. I'm not saying you should kick dogs, but obviously the table 
is turned, everything's mixed up today in our society. And we see that clearly. He says, therefore, because the answer is obvious, of course a man's more valuable than a sheep. He says, therefore, if it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Makes a plain statement. As the Lord of the Sabbath, he has the authority to say that. And then look at what he says in verse 13. doesn't shy away from him. It says, he reached out, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. So Jesus establishes a principle here. The Sabbath day is not, you know, a day that has to be kept with a bunch of minutia, and you've got to weigh everything. and do. That's not the spirit of God's original intent. And he's trying to get them back on the right path. But like so many people, they wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't hear it at all. And he tried to point that out to them. But they just wouldn't deal with it. You know, this reminds me, even today, over in India, where you have some Hindu cultures, that, you know, they won't kill a fly because they're afraid that it's somebody in, reincarnated and it might whack out their karma or whatever. They won't kill a rat or a mouse or a cow. And, and basically, studies show that two-thirds of their food supply is eaten by these things. I mean, here we just hire an exterminator, right? Kill the little buggers. Over there, you can't do that. Over there, some people say they won't give money to beggars or help the destitute because they feel, hey, you know what? This is what they got. They have to endure that suffering so they can earn their way back to the next level when they come back again. So really, cows are worth more than people. Cows are sacred. I mean, it's the same in, in Judaism. And so sometimes sheep were even more important to them economically than people. And so Jesus is pointing out here, hey, wait a minute, you got your, your, your rules all mixed up. And he reaches out and he hand, uh, heals this guy and he says, you know what? It's good, it's right to do lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. The Bible says, if you know to do good and you don't do it, it's what? It's sin. So we need to make sure that we understand that if there ever was a time for healing, if there was ever a time for blessing somebody, it was on the Sabbath day. And then we see here in verse 14 how they made an attempt to destroy him. That was their answer to everything that he just shared with them. Then the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might destroy him. And from that point, the Lord kind of withdraws because he wasn't ready for that point of contention yet because he was under the, under the mantle of Scripture in Isaiah 42. It says that he's not going to openly fight his enemies at this point in time. And so he was being obedient to even God's word at that point when he pulled back from that. But hopefully you can see very clearly here that this Sabbath day thing became this major legalistic issue. And see, whenever something becomes such a big issue that it closes out God's mercy, his loving kindness, his grace, his forgiveness, there's something wrong. Whenever religion becomes the focus 
of one's faith, there's something wrong. And the focus of our faith, the sustenance of our faith, should be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who established this. He's the one that laid down the rules and the law, and he laid it down for a purpose. And we need to ask ourselves, are we, are we fulfilling God's purpose in our lives? Or are we caught up in some minutia of dissecting this and dissecting that, and, well, we can do that or we can do that? I once, we were out to dinner one time, and we started eating. Nobody had prayed. And... <laughs> Somebody find, oh, we didn't, we didn't pray. We didn't thank God for the food. I said, well, we could always thank him at the end. I mean, we could. But I could see the uneasiness in the room, so we just went ahead and prayed. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to pray before whatever you eat, <laughs> you know. And other times it's so good, it might be good just to wait till the end and go, man, Lord, thank you. That was such a blessing. See, it's not a matter of timing. It's not a matter of, it's the attitude of the heart. When you sit down to eat a meal, do you understand that this meal comes from God? Just because you don't pause and you bow your, your head and you, you know, bless the Lord for these, I guess, what you're about to receive, amen. That was the token prayer growing up in my house. Name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we put that at the end too. You know, that was just the way we did it. But it was a mindless action. It was something that was just done. And sometimes we got to shake ourselves out of that and say, okay, you know what? I do come to church on the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath. Why do I come to church on Sunday morning? Do I come just because I got beat up all week and I need somebody to give me a shot in the arm to get me through the next week? Or do I come looking for somebody's need to fulfill? Or do I come looking for the mercy of God to share that with somebody else? Or do I come wanting to taste of God's grace and share that with somebody else, to fellowship with those in the household of faith? That should be our desire. So let's not grow complacent in our Christian disciplines, whether it's prayer or coming to church or witnessing or whatever, because it's not about the letter of the law. It's about the Spirit. Why are you doing what you do? I think that's most important that we ask that question. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you that the, the Sabbath was established for your people as an example, even as a shadow of things to come. And Lord, now that we're in Christ, now that we've entered your rest through his sacrifice, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that we're secured in him, that we no longer have to toil and labor and worry about our salvation. If we come to Christ with an open and repentant heart, then God hears that. And it says that he transforms us. He makes us into a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we think about giving you, offering up to you thanksgiving, this is the month of thanksgiving. And, Father, we pray that you would move, you would work, in and through your people, even as we take a short time of speaking back to you the many blessings maybe that you've blessed us with, and just by simply praying out to you, Father, I thank you for, and then filling in the blank. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be a simple word 
something you're thankful for. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to share our hearts with you this morning before our communion time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.